Lord, we thank you that the grass will wither and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so we position ourselves underneath your authority, Lord, and we pray together. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was uh, 20 and on at CU Committee, excited to serve God, loving doing so with my friends around me, uh, the staff worker at Dundee CU, who would be the equivalent of Matt Emo, uh, gave us a kind of smashing down to earth warning. We were at our planning weekend, kind of dreaming up ways to share the good news with our friends. And he, out of nowhere, just raised this topic of perseverance. And the room got kind of quiet and a bit awkward as he told us that of the 10 people that were on his CU committee when he was a student, half of them had fallen away from their faith in the years that followed. He said to us, statistically, not all of us in this room will run the race to the end. It was this kind of sober and silent moment as he encouraged us to pray for protection and perseverance. And for some reason, it has always stuck with me. Somehow kind of strengthened me in the years to come as I watched friends consider leaving Jesus behind or flirt with deconstructing their beliefs. And I say that because this morning as we come to the story of Judas, we're not doing it in a vacuum. We do so, we come to this passage knowing personally, most of us, people who have once walked with Jesus and now don't. Some of us can picture in our minds those that haven't so much drifted away as stormed away in anger and pain. Deconversion is not an academic subject. It's emotive and real. And we need to reckon with the painful reality of it. We need to do that realistically. And so because of that, because of that kind of sober warning that there is in a passage like this, here's, here's what we're going to do. We'll get to Judas and we'll spend most of our time on him. But to start, I want to consider Jesus and then John and their roles in the story and how just looking at them, God might give us some assurance and some perspective when it comes to the Judas story. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Jesus, who is assured but heartbroken. And then John, who is intimate but afraid. And then lastly, and at length, Judas, who is loved but lost. So let's just quickly reread together from verse 18, the first few verses of this account. Jesus says this, he says, I am not referring to all of you, I know those who I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of scripture, he who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Let's just recap where we are. Jesus has finally declared publicly that his hour has come. He is moving quickly towards the cross, preparing to be lifted up on the cross to be glorified as he puts it. And then we saw last week that his heart, even in that grief, is so bent towards love he would get down on his knees, put a towel around his waist, and wash his disciples' smelly feet. All of this is while Jesus is waiting to die. Now, if you've ever spent time with a dying family member, you know there's something kind of bitter but wonderful about those few days where you're with them and you know they have 
little time left, but you get to say goodbye and enjoy their company. And Jesus, in all his humanity, is soaking up his remaining hours. But his last few days are not like the bittersweet family goodbye to an elderly relative that you might have experienced. The people that have gathered around Jesus in his final days are not just his friends, but also his friend that is about to declare himself to be his enemy. And Jesus knows, it's just outrageous that Jesus knows while he washes feet and while he breaks bread, that one of his closest friends is just about to betray him to be crucified. Just imagine the heartbreak. Verse 21 describes Jesus as troubled in spirit. His insides are churning as he looks at Judas, his dear friend. Quote Psalm 41, the one who has eaten my bread has turned against me. Something so painful about this for Jesus, the loss of someone he has trusted, the loss of a deep friendship. We can't rush to his divinity without feeling the weight of his humanity. Here's what's astounding, because this normal human experience of feeling betrayed by a friend, the Son of God himself, the second person of the eternal trinity, he knows what it's like to be turned on by a friend. Isn't that just the most human of experiences. So there's something just profound as we begin this passage. It's this, the God who is never alone, who exists eternally in Trinitarian love and community, feels in this moment the heartbreaking feeling that we all know. I am alone at a table of my friends. According to his humanity, Jesus is distressed and afraid. But in the deep communion of his relationship with his father, he models something to us that is really important for us to grasp as we go into this story, and it's assurance. Look at his certainty in verse 18. He says, I know those I have chosen. Look, as much as Jesus is feeling the loss and loneliness of this moment, he is so sure of his mission so utterly certain about why he has come that nothing can shake him off course. So John framed the washing of the feet. He said this, quote, knowing where he had come from and knowing where he was going, Jesus got down. Knowing where he was going and knowing where he had come from, Jesus is calm and he's assured because he is certain about what he has come to do. And what is about to follow in this story, the famous story that we all know? Jesus wants us to know this as we begin. This story is not the sudden undermining of his previous teaching that nobody can snatch his sheep out of his hand. Jesus is not in this moment about to lose one of his sheep. That doesn't happen. It never happens. He's not the kind of shepherd that loses track of his sheep. What is about to happen is that Judas's flimsy foundations and false faith are about to be revealed. And Jesus needs us to know that because this is potentially a terrifying story if we don't know how firm a grip on us he has. He's determined that we know. And we know that because look at his priority in verse 19. I am telling you this now, he says, so that when it happens, you will believe that I am who I am. 
He's not telling them so that they can stop it from happening. And he's not telling them so that someone can sympathize with him. He's telling them so that they will have assurance. Even in his hours of deep distress and anxiety, his deepest concern is for his sheep. His only concern is that they will have confidence when Judas walks out that door that in the days to come, he is all he said he was. And that is his priority because he knows our minds. And he knows the disciples' minds. He knows that they're going to begin to wonder, well, what about me? How do I make sense of all this? What am I supposed to do when someone that I was convinced loved Jesus is now wandering away? He wants us to have assurance because he knows the faith-shattering potential of watching someone wander away from the fold. And so the first note, the first word Jesus wants to have in this story, he doesn't want to let Judas do his own thing without commenting on it first. The first note is this, I know the ones I have chosen. Believe in me. Believe in me. We need to get this in our minds before we get to Judas. Judas's betrayal, or in our day, the loss of faith that just seems so rampant, does nothing to undermine the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. It can't. He is sovereign in power and he's sovereign in salvation and he means it when he says that he will never lose a single sheep that belongs to him. I say that and I emphasize it because what is about to come is going to exist in tension against that reality. And we don't need to solve that tension. We don't need to tie it up neatly with a bow. We just need to trust that Jesus is the sovereign God who doesn't get surprised. And in that understanding, we need to find assurance. We can trust him. We can trust him with what the story says and we can trust him with the reality of these things in our own lives. So there's Jesus with the first note. He is heartbroken at the loss of a friend, but he is deeply assured that he knows the ones he has chosen. (coughs) And then there's John who is afraid but intimate. Have a look with me at verse 22. Understandably, it says, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he could mean. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And so leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. John is afraid but intimate. Let's just push into the human reality of the story. As Jesus announces a coming betrayal, you can only imagine the way the minds of the 12 people in this room start to race. There's a one in 12 chance he's talking about them. They are terrified. They have no idea who he's talking about. Now this feels like a shallow comparison, but it's hard not to imagine the round table scenes in the traitors if you've watched it recently. If you've never seen it, it's a televised week-long version of the Christian youth group game Mafia. And uh, in these round tables, they try and accuse each other of who the traitor is. And at these tables, there is just this tension of we have 
no idea who is not on our team. There's a, there's a real tension that's anxious. They're looking at each other, trying to suss each other out. And as shallow as that is, the text points us to a kind of similar confusion. They're looking at each other. They have no idea what to think. Peter makes eyes with John. Ask him. Ask him who it is. It wouldn't surprise me if they started to wonder, could it be me? I couldn't. But I know my heart. I know who I was before I met Jesus. So maybe, maybe he's talking to me. If I was there, I would have been afraid. Maybe it's me. Maybe my faith isn't all I thought it was. Maybe I'm about to do something I'm going to regret. But it's John who points us in his fear to our role in the story. It's the first time that John mentions the disciple that Jesus loved. And that process of elimination makes it obvious that's his own self-description. That's how he's referring to himself. Now don't read it as arrogance. It's not Jesus loved me more than everyone else. It's confidence. It's worshipful. It's his identity can't be in anything other than the love of God. But the kind of anonymity of that title kind of puts us in his shoes a little bit because I come to this text knowing myself to be the one that Jesus loves. And so in the story I see what, what would the response be? What, what is the right response of someone who knows that Jesus loves them and is afraid of the reality of people losing their faith? Well, look at verse 23. It says, One of the disciples, the one that Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. There's something wonderful about this verse that just isn't obvious in translation. The, the literal phrase that John uses to describe John's position is something like, quote, he was in the bosom of Jesus, which sounds weird. Why would John describe it that way? Well, it, it's not so weird when you remember that in John 1:18, John describes Jesus in just the same way. He says Jesus is, quote, the one and only son who is himself God and is in his father's bosom. So here's the connection. It, it's this. It's the, the ones who Jesus loves, far from in this moment needing to be anxious and scared and trying to figure it out, they exist in the same kind of relationship to Jesus as he does to his father. We are in him. Just as Father, Son, and Spirit are one, so we, if we have trusted him, if we have placed our identity in the reality that we are the ones whom Jesus loves, we become one with God. We become one with Jesus in the same way that Jesus is one with his Father. I love that John paints this picture as he looks back on these events because he looks back through his life and he's cluing us in on something. And it's this, it's, he never needed to be afraid. All those years, every step of the way, John now as an old man looks back and said, I was in my Lord, I was with him. I was in the most secure place I could be. See, in this deepest moment of betrayal and despair, he points us to the reality that we must have intimacy and union with Jesus. When we are scared, we need to be driven onto the steady rock of Christ. 
He leans on him in fear and anxiety and he sums up these words from Richard Lovelace. He says, spiritual life flows out of union with Christ, not merely imitation of Christ. And we'll see when we come to Judas just how true that is. But for now, John is in Christ. He's united to him. He has true spiritual life leaning on the bosom of his Savior and so can have true spiritual assurance. Now let me just, if you are fearful, give you a word of that spiritual assurance that we can have. John helps us see that asking the fearful question of could it be me is only a good sign. How do I know that I won't turn against him is only a sign that your heart is already knitted together with his in love. Someone who is not united with Jesus doesn't care about the prospect of falling away. Judas wasn't asking that question. John was. You don't need to be asking that question. I'm not. Gospel assurance is a wonderful thing, but if you are, if you're here and wondering as Jane read, how do I know that that won't be me? Then Jesus wants to whisper gospel reassurance into your ear. If you are in him, like John is, there's nowhere you can go. That's what Jesus does with John. No one overhears his words in verse 26. We know that because when Judas gets up to leave, the disciples are really confused about where he's going. They think he's going to buy bread. Jesus just whispers to John. As John kind of lies back on his friend and his God, he learns that he can rest. Because Jesus whispers assurance into his ear. As we turn to Judas, the villain of the story, let me just give you this. Assurance is found in Christ, the one who knows just who he has chosen. It's not in looking at yourself and trying to figure out whether you're doing enough. It's found in leaning back on the Son of God in intimacy and union, in resting in your identity as the one whom Jesus loves. That's where assurance lives. And as we turn to the meat of the story, here is his assurance to you from Luke's gospel. From shepherd to sheep, if you are anxious, he says this, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. Jesus is heartbroken, but assured. John is afraid, but intimate. And tragically, Judas is loved, but lost. Let's read from verse 26 together. Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Just come back to what we quoted earlier from Richard Lovelace. He said this, 
spiritual life flows out of union with Christ, not merely imitation of Christ. And when we come to the Judas story, that is a serious warning. Because where we see that John was in Christ, we see that Judas was just acting. He was imitating without intimacy. The tragedy of Judas's life is that he could have had everything John had. He could have had this intimacy with Jesus, but he chose instead to live a lie. We're so used to the story that we don't find our breath catching when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Just think about this for a minute, because Judas, of all people who have ever lived, was in the company of the 15 or so people who would walk intimately every day with the incarnate Son of God. He watched him, he learned from him, he ate and laughed and cried with him. Judas had the privilege of listening live to the Sermon on the Mount. He watched Jesus raise Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead with tears in his eyes. He heard his parables and watched him walk on water. He saw fish and loaves multiplied. Judas was given authority to preach, to cast out demons and to heal. And his life gave no indication that he wasn't all in. So why the disciples have no idea who Jesus is talking about. It's not like they all look at him and say, well, you never were a very good preacher. And whenever you prayed, nothing ever happened. So he's obviously talking about you. His life looks just the same as Peter and John and so on. His life looked genuine. He had access to Jesus and he was deeply loved by Jesus. We see that even in where he's sitting at this feast. In the way that Jesus and his disciples would recline at table to eat Passover, it's impossible for Jesus lying on his side to pass the bread to anyone that's not right next to him. So it seems that John is at his right and Judas might just be at his left in a position of honor. Judas is physically with Jesus, but spiritually he is miles away. While Jesus washed his feet, his mind was on how he could get the betrayal done. In the words of Eric Raymond, Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet. He is loved. He doesn't stand out from the rest because Jesus didn't pay him attention and because he wasn't effective, he is loved. Come back to the piece of bread that Jesus gives him. Context would suggest it's probably a kind of sop made of bitter herbs. The sign of sin and the way that God freed the Israelites from slavery at the Passover. To pass the bitter herbs to someone was an act of love and shared worship. And Jesus just hands it to Judas. It's as though for one last time he's saying, come with me. Don't do what you're about to do. I'm the God, just like Yahweh all those years ago, rescued his people from sin. Take these herbs, remember your sin, don't do it. Jesus hands him a lifeline, but God's words to Cain all those centuries before seem to hang in the air in the silence. Sin is crouching at the door. His desire is to have you. Judas is loved. 
He's in the inner circle of the Son of God himself. But he's empty. He imitates Jesus without any intimacy. And so he takes the bread and he leaves. Judas teaches us this. It is very possible to do all the right things and not know Jesus. Jesus taught this on the Sermon on the Mount with Judas there in the front row listening. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. According to Jesus, you can prophesy and perform miracles. You can be the keeper of money for the disciples. You can serve and lead in the church. And never know Jesus. And here's why. Because there is a fundamental difference between Judas and John. And how they respond to Jesus. They're both loved. But John stakes his life on the love of Jesus. He makes it his identity. He gets into Christ. Judas takes Christ for granted. And his faith is caught in the thorns and thickets of greed. Something else catches his eye and he begins to drift away from the love of Jesus. You might be there. You might be there. You might know that your service and discipleship are shallow, lacking any intimacy with Jesus. During the moment that Jesus predicts his betrayal, Judas isn't confused. He knows it's him. That is a horrifying moment. He has a chance to repent. He has a chance to change his mind in this moment and stay with Jesus. And you may too just know that it's you. That you are considering walking away. That your prayer and your serving and your fill in the blank, are just imitation of what you feel you should do with no intimacy at all. What Judas stands as a warning to us because for all that he's loved, he shows us that outside of Christ's church, there is only darkness. He's loved, but ultimately he finds himself lost. John signs off this story with three words. It was night. And you and I know John's gospel well enough by now, I hope, to know that this isn't just a description of the time of day. It's this. Judas leaves Christ behind and everything is dark. There is nothing good waiting for him on the other side of that door. The New Testament is brutal about the reality of what waited Judas. John 17, Jesus calls him the one doomed to destruction. In Matthew 26, he's even harsher. He says, woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. The story of Judas's life ends with this awful realization that he had sinned. In Matthew 27, 4, he realizes what he's done. And he turns in regret, in some kind of remorse, not to Jesus, but to the high priests. 
And they respond by saying this, quote, what is that to us? That is your responsibility. Verse 5 of Matthew 27 says this, he threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Outside of Jesus, as Judas comes to the Jewish leaders, he finds no mercy. He might come full of remorse, but he leaves empty and cold. Apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus, you will never find grace. You, You won't leave here looking for life and find it anywhere else. You will only find the cold, disinterested, do it yourself response of a world that doesn't know what it is to live in the light of Jesus. Judas finds judgment and despair and then he refuses to come back to Christ. He can't bring himself to do it and he dies in his sin. Let me just be very clear. Judas is in hell as we speak. Jesus makes that clear. We we don't He leaves Christ in his church and he finds instantly that there's nothing outside of Jesus. He makes his choice. He's not forced. Jesus holds him the piece of bread and implicitly says, don't do this. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. He was with Jesus. He made his choice and he chose darkness. And just, Let me be clear with you that what we sometimes call deconstruction, I kind of, well, I'm just figuring out what my faith might look like. I'm figuring out what a non-kind of evangelical Western, that's not all bad, but so often it results in what the Bible will call sinful deconversion. That to just question everything that Jesus has said all the time. On the other side of that door is not more life, it's death. C.S. Lewis captures the other side of this reality, the mistake that Judas makes, the mistake that you might be flirting with. He says this, he says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. There is no joy or power or peace or eternal life outside of union with Jesus. It's why John leans on him in fear. It's why Jesus himself is so assured So let's just come back to that because Judas' betrayal is not the final act of a tragic story. It is a sad blip before a glorious finale. His betrayal is the next step in Jesus' relentless march towards the cross. It will not be wasted. And it's not a surprise. Jesus Christ will be victorious. It's impossible and Judas is experiencing the reality of it right now, it is impossible to subvert or defeat or destroy the plan of Jesus. Nobody stands against him. Nobody stands against him. 
And you and I, the Johns, the beloved disciples, can have confidence this morning that no amount of this, no amount of Judas's leaving the church, no amount of deconversion and deconstruction can put an end to the kingdom of God found in Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing. Nothing can do that. And if you are in him, if you are one of his sheep, if you have come into the fire of Christ to find warmth, he assures you that he will never lose you. He will never let you go. The temptation for us is just to marvel at Judas. How could he do that? Here's what I think God would have us do, is to just marvel even more at the goodness of God that stops you and I from doing what we so easily could do. So run away from Jesus for some pocket money. Jesus' brother Jude finished his letter in the New Testament with these words about God. He said, he is able to keep us from stumbling, to present us pure before his presence. That's the promise of God to you. Philippians 1. The one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus. <coughs> Judas reveals his flimsy faith, but if we are in Christ, if we have placed, like John, our assurance and our hope and our trust into him, then we have nothing to fear. Judas was loved, but lost. Unlike John, who models to us what it is to be afraid but intimate with Jesus, who is heartbroken but assured and reassures us this morning with the promise of his word. Receive it again. Jesus says, fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, our hearts with uh, Jesus' heart break at the reality of this story. Break at the reality that we have seen this story play out in our own lives. And they break at the reality that we know, Father, some of us are considering following in his footsteps. Holy Spirit, I pray for those of us who are just unsure. Unsure about whether to take that piece of bread and leave or whether to stay and stick with Jesus. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you bring life into our hearts? Would you help us to see that in Jesus, there is life, there is warmth, there is joy, and outside of him, there's only the coldness and darkness of night. Help us trust him, Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief. And Lord, for those of us that are anxious, who need assurance, could we thank you for your certain promise that nobody can snatch us from your hand. We rest in that reality this morning, Lord. If we are in Jesus, we thank you that nothing can remove us from him. Thank you, Lord. In the name of your son.
Amen.